0: Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist, Mark Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis, and I wanted to talk today about the cervix a woman gets screened with pap smears for her cervix and screens for cancer, obviously. So you may be thinking, what does this have to do with fertility? Well, pregnancy health is really uh, based on how healthy you are prior to pregnancy. And and unless you are optimal before you get pregnant, you can have more complications during pregnancy that would affect you and baby. I thought we would talk about some things with your cervix to ensure that you are getting proper screening, and also what we can do to optimize your fertility and protect your fertility if you do get cervical disease. I could think of no other person to talk about that better than Dr. Christopher Bryant. Uh, Chris is here in Orlando, and he's a gynecologic oncology and surgeon for more than 15 years. He's specially trained at National Cancer Institute, a designated Carmenos Cancer Institute in Michigan, and his special interests are in oncofertility, helping with education and management of women's health issues, and impact on family planning. Uh, Chris has helped us with our patients, and he's an outstanding clinician and advocate for women's health. Chris, uh, thanks for joining us on the Fertility Health Podcast.
0: Thanks, Dr. Charles. I appreciate being invited to be here with you.
1: Well, oh, my, my pleasure. pleasure. Completely. So so, so, so Chris, you know, the, the, issues, the issues of, 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 of pap smear screening uh, have changed over the, the years, certainly since we've been trained. Been so, what would you advise a woman who's trying to conceive uh, for, for, for good cervical good. health?
0: Well, you're, you're correct in that, uh, you know, since we did our initial training, things have ch- uh, changed drastically. and. Um, The two things that have happened most are the way the pap smears are collected and processed as well as something that's called co-testing where we use actual tests for DNA that looks for a virus that is largely involved with people that have abnormal precancer or cancerous changes of the cervix. Since the populations of people that are trying to become pregnant or start their family planning is a wide range of people, it actually encompasses those people that are under the age of 21 because some some couples choose to start very early in their pregnancy and their attempts of obtaining family planning and those that go further out into their 40s even that have had other obstacles, either career or not opportunities to start their family planning until later. And because of that wide range of age groups, we sort of cross a significant continuum of screening guidelines. Used to, you know, we were taught that your cervical cancer screening with pap smears should start at a very early age, and that was based on both sexual activity and age. Since then, we have noticed and learned through our research that those women that are under the age of 21 have a very low risk of developing cervical cancer, and therefore, starting your initial screening really shouldn't occur regardless of your sexual activity until the age of 21. So I think there would be a small group of women before the age of 21 that if they were starting their family planning and moving forward, that there would still be a catch point that we would be able to evaluate them to make sure that they were at optimal health. That optimal health is most women's prenatal visit at the very first visit allows them to have a pap smear performed to ensure that their environment for the pregnancy is as healthy as possible. Then when we get into that age group of 21 to 29, we see that we can use the pap smear test alone without using the virus testing as a way to screen women for those changes that make us concerned for precancer changes.
1: I'm, I'm sorry, because let me just jump in for a second because a lot of information, I just want to make sure our audience is, is staying with us. Uh, so the initial screening um, uh, after age 21, irrespective of sexual activity, how often should women be getting a screen?
0: Well, so as we look at those three age group categories would be under 21, 21, and 29, and then 30 through menopausal age, they vary based on those age groups. So when you reach that reproductive years of 21 to 29, uh, the recommendation is that every three years they receive their pap smear testing. For that age group older than 29, which would be 30 and above, they use the HPV testing plus the pap smear, and that's done typically every five years.
1: Okay, so HPV for our audience is the human papillomavirus, and this is the one that has been most commonly associated with cervical cancer, particularly the the different types of HPV. Was it 16 and 18, I believe, correct?
0: That's correct. That's the most common types that we watch for for precancerous and cancerous changes.
1: So if a woman has a, a normal pap smear, and is tested positive for HPV, should that influence her reproductive choices?
0: I don't believe so unless there are scenarios that result in in further diagnostic tests or treatment based on uh, the results. For example, you and I both know that in those women that we do find precancerous change to, sometimes they need a larger biopsy or a portion of that cervix to be evaluated and there's a lot of concern that that in itself can result in some loss of fertility or difficulty with becoming pregnant or maintaining a pregnancy.
1: Okay. All right. Very good. So um, what, 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 what a lot of women uh, may not be aware is that if they do have an abnormal pap smear, a lot of times they'll go to the next step of having a um, microscopic or magnified view of their cervix to see if there's any changes on the cervix, and this is done while you're awake in the gynecologist's office, and maybe biopsies are performed as well, and this is called a colposcopy. Now, based on the colposcopy, Chris, there, there are there are treatments for cervical disease that are not very invasive, uh, and and can you just walk us through a couple of those? Yeah, so you're
0: right, and I, I described the colposcopy the same way, basically, as a magnifying glass that lets us have a closer look at the skin or the tissue of the cervix. It's, it's very similar to what dermatologists do, and, and lots of people have, uh, understand dermatology exams. Uh, there are multiple treatments you can do based on the risk or the scale of the precancerous change or the abnormal changes, and um, you'll see things all the way from observation, You know, which is different from when you and I first started. Everybody, even with mild changes that are really not a big deal, would receive some sort of treatment. Nowadays, the people with mild changes, they just many times get watched for sometimes as long as two years because they know it may resolve on its own. And then those people that go further into the more higher changes, either moderate or severe, when we see those changes, we start talking about procedures that remove the abnormal cells from the skin to allow the healthy cells to grow in. And physicians have a huge... Uh, list of tools to do that with, not only freezing the area but uh, removing that area with a very simple biopsy-like procedure Uh, and some docs even still use laser as a way to treat those abnormal skin areas of the cervix.
1: So so a lot of women do hear about a a leap or a cone which is excising or removing a part of the cervix that's diseased. Now without having to really distinguish between the two it is, it is removing a portion of the cervix and obviously for reproductive purposes we're always concerned about is that going to cause any problems with subsequent fertility because the cervix does secrete uh, mucus to facilitate sperm transport to go up through the cervix into the uterine cavity and eventually fallopian tubes to fertilize the egg. So if the cervix is affected, are we, are we reducing pregnancy rates as a result of affecting cervical mucus, number one. And number two, uh, are we increasing our risk of miscarriage or preterm labor if we are removing uh, such a, a large amounts of the cervix based on the extent of disease?
0: Yeah, so, you know, there's been a lot of interest, especially uh, for LEAP conizations or any conizations, and we'll just refer that to as a LEAP, because that's the most common term, I think, you know, our patients here. Um, that's It has been a procedure that's been around for many years and decades, and therefore we've gathered a lot of information from it. And if you watch people uh, that have a LEAP performed, the things that they worry about are, after the LEAP, will there be a barrier like you're talking about to cervical mucus or the opening of the cervix to the womb that results in cervical stenosis, which may result in a barrier of uh, of the reproductive um male and reproductive, female reproductive parts being able to join together to allow uh, for fertilization. And then the other part would be, is there a role for what we call a cervix not being strong enough to hold a pregnancy or resulting in, in miscarriages? They seem to be extremely uncommon to occur. Women that have had multiple extensive procedures appear to be at risk for having more complications related to the leaps. So fortunately, we don't see a high risk related to be able to become pregnant or carry a healthy pregnancy, and it seems to be only in a rare few that that occurs. But it's definitely something each provider should work with their patients to minimize that risk as much as possible.
1: What about further, and uh, oh, by the way, when, when you mentioned stenosis, just for, for the for the listeners, that's a, a, a narrowing of the canal uh, of, of an area that we're looking at. So cervical stenosis means that the The area from the outside of the cervix up into the uterus can get very, very, very narrow. Uh, Rarely it can be closed off and prevent menstrual flow from passing and and, uh, obviously we'd be concerned about fertility issues of sperm uh, traveling up into the uterine cavity. But while we talked about miscarriage, Chris, what about cervical shortening? You know, you hear a lot about this from our colleagues in high-risk obstetrics and they will measure by ultrasound the length of a, of a pregnant woman's cervix to predict preterm labor and, and, and possibly delivery. Are you seeing any increasing risks with a, with a leap of removing that portion of the cervix and preterm labor because of cervical shortening?
0: So, you know, it, it kind of falls into all of those areas. As we do more procedures, in um, this particular case, leaps, we do increase that risk of it occurring, although that risk is still small. But, boy, we've sure come a long way w- with helping uh, women with maintaining a healthy pregnancy. As you know, our technology of ultrasounds, which uh, most women now are very familiar with ultrasounds, and it's like the stethoscope of the uh, OBGYN. It's really our main tool that helps us see what's going on with the mom and the pregnancies. And they've developed algorithms that, like you said, the high-risk docs will use actual measurements of that to determine if someone is starting to come into a high-risk group for either the cervix not holding on to the pregnancy or something that would be at risk for a preterm delivery or a miscarriage. So yes, yeah, so definitely people with a history of those changes from precancerous or cancerous changes from the cervix, those that need to be monitored because of their previous procedures, have hopefully and happily we have high-risk docs that are able to help us with that.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trolles, and I wanted to take a few seconds and share some exciting news with you. My new book, The Fertility Doctor's Guide to Overcoming Infertility, Discovering Your Reproductive Potential and Maximizing Your Odds of Having a Baby, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. It's a long title, but I assure you that's because there is so much great information and insight, Packed within the only general guide to infertility written by a medical doctor who specializes in the subject. That's me. This book has been a labor of love and I can't wait to share it with you all. So give yourself the best possible odds for getting pregnant and having a baby with this concise and encouraging companion available on Amazon for pre-order today. Now back to the episode. Moving on now to disease, that that becomes much more serious, and and this is the uh, carcinoma in situ, which is the limited uh, disease uh, uh, to the cervix. Okay, it hasn't spread. It's the cancer that's very very limited to the cervix, and then of course uh, cervical stands uh, cervical cancer that's a little bit more invasive. Those are opportunities still for fertility preservation, in other words, sparing the the woman's uterus to to be able to subsequently conceive, correct? And could you walk us through that a little bit? Yes,
0: yeah, so those people, um, we still are lucky to have a continuum there. And like you said, the, the term we use is carcinoma in situ or stage zero cervix cancer. It technically hasn't reached the cancerous stage itself, but those are still uh, amenable to treatments either with colonization or that LEAP procedure. And, in that, you get to preserve the normal portions of the cervix to participate with uh, sperm transfer and fertilization and holding and maintaining a pregnancy. And then even up to those people that may have an actual cancerous lesion or spot, some of those women are able to have a larger portion of the cervix removed, even removed from the lower part of the uterus to be able to still maintain the ability to not only have their own pregnancy, but carry their own pregnancy. And then. Fortunately, those conditions that create a risky environment for a woman related to their cervix and uterus, the chances of cervix cancers involving or being spread to the ovary, because all of us worry about cancer spread if we're given a diagnosis of cancer, it is so low that even with those women that unfortunately have to have their complete cervix and uterus removed, Usually, we are able to preserve or keep the ovaries so that we can use techniques like you do with our reproductive specialists with their IVF and use of surrogate mothers to still be able to build their family.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, someone with um, localized cancer uh, to the cervix, and you mentioned removing the cervix. So, that's the trachelectamine, correct? So, that's, that's so we're sparing the uterus, but removing the the neck, if you will, the neck of the of the uterus, which is the cervix. So, what fertility uh, opportunities there are if you're able to remove the cervix? So, the woman is able to still have periods if you if you create an opening in the lower part of the uterus. Correct?
0: That's correct. We still try to maintain that canal or lower uterine opening so that there could be natural fertilization. Although most of those patients we work with. Uh, an uncle fertility specialist like yourself to uh, assist or aid in the in the fertilization process, but still be able to either transfer or offer fertilization further into the uterus away from the surgery area.
1: So, for our fertility patients listening, uh, the typical way for uh, a reproductive specialist, fertility specialist, to help you conceive is either through intrauterine insemination (IUI) or in vitro fertilization with embryo transfer. And both of these involve the cervix. So we put a catheter through the outside of the cervix, uh, passing through the cervical canal uh, up into the uterine cavity. So if, if we're doing this, and then the embryo transfer the same way, of course. So if we're doing this and the cervix is removed, we may be able to get the, through the opening up into the uterine cavity, but how would these patients deliver, Chris, if they, if they fortunately can conceive?
0: Well, so if we, for those of the women that are thinking, well, this doesn't make sense, you remove part of the uterus and we're worried about incompetence, but then you tell me you remove all of the cervix and now I'm not worried about incompetence. There have been procedures that we've used for decades as a way to help women carry their own pregnancy when they're at risk for early pregnancy loss, miscarriages, and preterm labor, and those are called surclages. And the surclage is actually a term that describes basically a tourniquet, and a tourniquet that holds that area permanently together in a fashion that allows you to still do those procedures that you just talked about, but then at the same time, small enough and tight enough that it allows the pregnancy to develop and do the normal growth and size of the uterus without growing in that particular area to result in pregnancy loss.
1: Interesting. So so they would then have a scheduled C-section? Uh, at the time of delivery, uh, and uh, yes, mm-hmm. so uh, so there is no ability for the, I'm just curious, for the ability for the, for the lower uterus to expand, to allow baby to pass, if you're able to remove that cerclage, but typically the cerclages are not placed through the vagina, there would be abdominal placements, so more complicated, correct?
0: That's right, so the cerclages are done two different ways. For women that have a cervix in place, typically a high-risk pregnancy physician will place cerclages around the cervix itself. Those are commonly removed at the time of labor to allow for a normal vaginal delivery. For those women that have been burdened with cervical cancer that they've undergone the removal of the cervix or that tracheolectomy, and then the reproductive specialist to aid in helping with obtaining a pregnancy, prior to that pregnancy and usually at the time of the removal of the cervix an abdominal cerclage is placed, meaning that it is inside the abdomen, although behind all the special normal structures, it's in a place that is not able to be removed, nor is it advised to be removed to allow for a vaginal delivery.
1: Mm -hmm. Interesting. Very, very good. So, to take it one step further, if we have significant uh, advanced disease and the uterus is, is required to, uh, to be removed, if we're, for our listeners, if we're able to just maintain one ovary, then we can still potentially get eggs. or, of course, if your ovaries need to be removed at the time of a surgery, uh, we remove the, uh, we, could, we could get eggs before the removal of the ovaries and then use a gestational carrier. Uh, for, to, to still use your eggs. Chris, are the ovaries, is it common to remove the ovaries with cervical cancer or are you just displace them uh, with the, if you have to do radiation?
0: Yes, yeah, so the, that, that's a good question. So unfortunately, like with all cancer patients, we're always worried, do they need more than just surgery? Do they need chemotherapy or do they need radiation? And unfortunately, in those women that need radiation, we know that that can result in what we call premature or early failure of the ovaries. And that failure we're talking about is not only hormonal function, but also the reproductive function, the loss of uh, production of eggs. So in women that have a very early cervix cancer and minimal to no chance of needing chemotherapy or radiation, The ovaries typically are left down in an area close to the vagina so that those reproductive specialists like yourself that are helping families build their families larger, they're in a place that you know technically allow you to reach them after you've used your special techniques to produce the eggs. Uh, But fortunately, you and I have had a few cases where in those patients we're worried that they may need more treatment than the surgery alone. The ovaries are able to be placed into a different area just a little bit outside the pelvis with their normal attachments and blood supply to the body, but still gives us an opportunity to uh, stimulate those ovaries, retrieve those eggs, and use a gestational carrier.
1: Yeah, I've seen it. I was uh, at the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Uh, I was moderating a video session, and they were showing the return of the ovaries that were transposed or displaced out of the pelvis to not be affected by the radiation beam, the x-ray radiation beam, and then put back into the pelvis. So uh, it's, it's difficult to retrieve those eggs uh, through the vagina uh, when they are displaced and transposed. But um, this is I hope this is uh, as exciting to the listeners as it is to me because the, what we're doing now for fertility preservation uh, and, and early detection of cancer is, is amazing. So, uh, Chris, before we uh, actually close, uh, I I just wanted to emphasize the fact to to our listeners that for everything that you can do, it's always better to do for your health before pregnancy because every treatment of a problem gets more complicated once we are pregnant with baby involved. Uh, So then we have to think about how to do that and also maintain an optimal pregnancy. So, Chris, before we go, if you, if you could just review how often uh, women should be getting screened for, 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 for pap smears and evaluations of their cervix.
0: That sounds great. And, and remember, we're talking about reproductive age women that go from early years after starting their cycles all the way up until menopause. And those screening guidelines change across those age groups. So those women under the age of 21, they can wait and worry about their screening either at the time of a pregnancy, which is a part of their prenatal visit, but their routine screening technically doesn't start until 21. Those women between the age of 21 and 29 will receive a pap test only, and that pap test only is done every three years as long as it stays normal. Once we reach the age 30 till the menopausal age, is when you will see what we call, like we talked about earlier, the co-testing with the HPV as well as the pap smear. And as long as those are normal, women can sometimes space their pap smears out as long as five years during those times.
1: Yeah, that's great. Uh, Wonderful information, uh, Chris. You're always a a wealth of knowledge and a great resource for me. And I want to thank you so much for being part of the Fertility Health Podcast today. That's great. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you wanna learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.